Love can be such a non-word sometimes. It loses its meaning, its potency, you know, like, I really love a cheeseburger. And then I really love, you know, like a sunny day. And then I really love my family, like they're, none of those loves are remotely the same. They're totally different things, you know. It's really difficult to write a song about love or even use the word love in a song, you know, because of what does it mean? What does it really mean, you know? I'm just really excited to play, like, I love, you know, good crowds when they sing, and like, I, I like it when they feel like they're part of what's going on, you know, because to me it's not about playing perfect music as much as it's about, like, uh, almost kind of like a relationship with each other. About seven years ago, when I was down in Jacksonville, Florida, I flew down there to work in the studio, and while I was down there, we got a call that several of our friends had been in a, a really bad car accident, and, um, Later on that night, I found out that uh, one of my best friends, uh, Steve, had died as a result of injuries from that accident. I woke up the next morning and I was uh, just really angry and confused and, and hurt, you know. And I process things through music. You know, that's just how I do um, deal with my issues. And so um, I really needed, I felt that I really needed some sort of, um, I needed to have some sort of conversation with God because I was really, really frustrated. I felt like there were some things I needed to say. And so that's what I would do through the music. And that's really a lot of where the song, How He Loves, came out of was I needed these words. I needed this conversation. I'm really looking forward to playing music tonight. I'm really excited to um, be with all the people who are going to be there. He is jealous of me. Loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind. And the love I'm singing about in that song is really is not a pretty, clean. It's not a Hollywood hot pink love. It's, um, it's a kind of love that's willing to love things that are messy and willing to love even the difficult and sort of, um, you know, kind of gross kind of things, you know. Oh, how he loves us so. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves us. That's really the kind of song I wanted to write. It's through this frustrating period, and he could, you know, in my anger, in my resentment, and in my frustration, he could still love me through that. You know, and, and in this process of dealing with the, uh, my buddy dying, and um, he could love me through that, and he was okay. He wasn't, you know, offended at the fact that I was angry at God. Just looking at these old uh, lyrics, 
You think I've seven, seven, seven years? But still, really tough. The song isn't a celebration of weakness and anger. It's a celebration of a God who would want to hang with us through those things, who'd want to be a part of our lives through those things. And despite who we are, he would want to be a part of us and be a part of our community and be a part of our family. And that's, that's the kind of love I, I think I'm talking about. Let's uh, begin by reading Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Well, I think like many of the songs that we've explored up to this point, John Mark McMillan experienced a tremendous sense of loss that drove him to a moment of communion with God. And that moment resulted in a tremendous work of art that has had meaning for millions of believers. An unconditional, unwavering love is the only thing that can hold relationships together in a broken, corrupted world. And in moments of doubt, fear, or sorrow, knowing that you're loved is critical to your survival. And the fact that we're loved by God is in many ways our most essential identity. And because of that, we also can love. So as we explore this song, I want to phrase the title of the song, How He Loves Us, or How He Loves, as a question, and then look at a few of the answers. So how does he love us. I think one of the ways that he loves us is furiously. In Job chapter 30, uh, verse 20 through 23, Job said, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You've turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. 
You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. And you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Macmillan was not the first of God's children to find himself in a storm of anguish, feeling the need to shout into the wind. And even at moments, the urge to give up in despair at the overwhelming grief or the pain that was consuming him. The book of Job is a literary and philosophical exploration of how and why the righteous experience such things. God's answer to Job was that he couldn't know the reasons why and that he should just trust God. Here's where a relationship is essential. Knowledge of God will not see you through such moments, but trust in his love alone can allow you to ride on the wind with an upright heart. It's worth noting that in the Hebrew scriptures, the word wind or ruach is also the word for the spirit. And we can see that there's a glimmer of hope in the storm that he is indeed in the hurricane with us. In Isaiah 28, verse 2, he wrote, Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand. We could say that not only is God in the storm, but he is the storm. When we studied the Old Testament, we noted that much of our frustration at God's seeming failure to deliver on his promises was due to our incredibly small sense of time. And in moments of loss and turmoil, it's worth remembering that we're too small to see outside the storm and that his breath is also at hurricane force, providing all the life-sustaining spirit that we need in the blistering gale. When I retold Esther's story a few years ago, in summary, I noted that God's word is absolutely true and he is absolutely faithful and that the worst place you could ever find yourself was standing between God's promise and its fulfillment. Haman and his co-conspirators discovered this very painfully. As I've grown to learn more about God's identity, I think I can update that to say it this way. The worst place you could ever stand is between God's love and its fulfillment. He will not stop until he can express his love for his people. And his love is world shattering. Matthew chapter 27, uh, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. 
He loves like a hurricane. I am a tree, bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions, eclipsed by glory, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And in John 16, verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in my, me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Knowing his spirit is with us, and knowing that his furious love is scouring the earth in preparation for its great remaking gives us peace to weather the storm, and we can ride the whirlwind with patient endurance. He also loves us passionately. Song of Songs 2, verses 3 through 6 and as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Revelation 19.6 Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And in Isaiah 54, verse 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah shall no more go over the earth. I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not be, uh, depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. I don't think it's truly a metaphor that God loves his people as a husband loves his bride because marriage was established at creation so that this physical being could experience a physical union that mirrored a perfect spiritual union which God had ordered between, between him and his spiritual beings, uh, mankind being the only creation that crossed both realms. So I think it may be more accurate to say that marriage is the metaphor for how God loves his people. 
And if you read Song of Songs with any ear for subtext, you'll feel the passion and desire between these two lovers. God wants us to seek him because we were created for more than a life of skin and bone. We were created to inhabit his heavenly realm and share in the abundance of spiritual provision that he has prepared for us. He desperately wants us to be close to him. So heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss, and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. Without regard to propriety and the common wisdom of the enlightened leaders, God chose to break all expectations of mankind by joining us as a spiritual and physical being. We were made in his image, but in the most uh, pure expression of love, he then chose to take on our image. And he did so by birth through the womb of a woman. Few experiences in life are more messy and unregal than birth. But there was God himself, covered in fluid in the straw of a feeding trough as all of creation gasped and struggled to grasp the enormity of this great mystery being revealed. He who loves does not hesitate to take on scandal or derision or indignity to see those he loves cared for. And perhaps most importantly, he loves us completely. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love is mentioned hundreds of times in the Old and New Testaments, and it hums just below the surface of all the other scriptures and recorded events. Without love, there is no word. James tells us that God is love. He wrote relationship into the very foundations of existence, choosing to express himself in distinct persons and to create spiritual beings with which to fellowship and bring order to the universe. Ephesians 1, verse 4, Even before he made the world, God loved us, loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us, along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ and we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. With all the foreknowledge of your weakness, your unfaithfulness, your hatefulness, God planted the seed of your soul into creation itself. 
committing to redeem you to him and to reunite you with his steadfast love. And that phrase, steadfast love, appears repeatedly in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is usually read as grace, mercy, loving kindness, or steadfast love. It's a love that carries meaning as deep and as broad as the oceans and just as consuming. In the New Testament, God's love to us is certainly prominent, but the authors are just as often telling us that we must love God and that we must love our fellow believers. Love is all-encompassing. We are called to reciprocate and to broadcast this love. John chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And throughout the scriptures, we're told such things as, the greatest of these is love. Above all, put on love. They will know you by your love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Outdo one another in love. You have a spirit of power and love. Train the young women to love their husbands and their children. Stir up one another to love. Perhaps more than any other part of the Bible, the Psalms celebrate and call out God's love over and over. Psalm 13, 5. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoin your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 33, 5. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And Psalm 57, 10. Your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And then in Psalm 136, uh, verse 23. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Every moment, an act of love that we give is a small reflection of God's perfect love. Dimmed by sin, corruption, and weariness, God loves you like your parents, but better. God loves you like your spouse, but better. God loves you like you love your children, but better. God loves you like you love your neighbors, but better. God loves you like you love yourself, but better. In fact, I believe if you step back through the precious memories of your life and could bring out every single moment of the most perfect love you have experienced, the deepest love that you have given, and you could hold them all out in your hands together at once, even they would seem light next to the great weight of his glorious mercy for you. All this to say that you can never outrun his love. You can never outsin his love. You can never underestimate his love. You can never escape his love. As you breathe deeply of the spirit in his new life, you can only drown in his grace as you die to this world and see it eclipsed by glory to see just how beautiful he is and how great his affections are for you. Romans chapter 8 Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we, he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are his portion, and he is our prize, drawn to redemption by the grace in his eyes. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. How he loves us, how he loves us, how he loves us so.